1: Hello, my name's Jess Phillips, and this is Yours Sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Glenn Fussell is the founder of Sink the Pink and The Mighty Hoopla. He hosts the podcast We Can Be Heroes and wrote the book Manifesto for Misfits. Today, I'm excited to talk to him about the letters he would send to three people who mean the world to him. So, Hello. Welcome to my podcast. As I was saying before, this
2: is a real honour for me. I was very excited. I do quite a few podcasts. And as I was saying before, as um, a real working class winder and grinder, I've been a huge fan of yours, Jess, for some time. Yeah, I think you're wonderful.
1: My husband says I'm posh. He's much more common than me. Uh,
2: <laughs> lovely. Sometimes we we wear the posh mask to get by in life, but do you know what? I'm rough as old boots, me.
1: Yeah, I can do it on the phone. I can do like, oh hello, hello. phone voice. But I think that's a really working class thing to have a phone. Yeah, voice. it is. Was... <laughs> <laughs> like people just use their voice when yeah. they're on the phone to yeah. the bank. They just use their actual voice. Yeah, imagine that. Um, so this is all about letter writing. Are you much of a letter
2: writer? Well again this is why I was super excited to come on because I have I'm a notorious letter writer. I'm very old school actually. For a lot of the newfangled things I've done in my career, I am actually someone that really craves those old creative practices. I think that there's a real beauty and there's a real romance to writing letters, but there's also it's just something that I, I feel a deep connection with someone when they write me a letter and I write one in return. And and it really did start for me when I first started going on holiday with my family. And I would, I was obsessive about make, making pen pals. I don't even know if I really wanted these people to be my friends. It was more the practice of having pen pals and someone to write to.
1: Kids don't do that anymore. My kids go on holiday. I mean, mainly maybe it's because we go on holiday with their, their mates, like, we all go on holidays in big gangs. But my kids, like, they don't just go off and make friends with, like, you know, the random Flemish kids who are in the jeep next door, like, you know, who can't speak a word of bloody English. And, uh, like, that doesn't happen anymore. My kids don't make friends with people and they, say, they don't write letters.
2: I think what it was with me, I'm, I'm one of seven, I'm, I'm from a whole tribe of working-class chaos... And we didn't have a huge amount of holidays, but they were, felt very exotic. Even if we were in Dawlish Warren, you know, in a caravan, they were exotic. And, and I always felt very much like the, the oddball, the alien in our family. So for me, it was so exciting, even to just meet someone that lived in Wigan. Exotic Wigan? Oh, come on, then. I want to know all about your life. What magazines do you buy? Make me a mixtape. Um, and I would, I would go with a book. And I would write all... The, and I would... We ha- would always have stickers, because you've got to have stickers. And I would find out things about them, write them in my, like, journal, and then I would follow it up with with having pen pals. And that's continued all my life. I've always written letters to pre-social media when I would fall in love. And I was a, um, a repeat offender of falling in love when I first came out. I was an absolute romantic. So I was always falling in love, and it was always with someone that lived on the other side of the world. So they would... Get mad outpourings on letters. Where did you find them? Um, well, when I was eighteen, you see, uh, to get away from Bristol, where I was, where I w- was uh, raised, I thought to myself, where can I go and be the flamboyant homosexual that hides deep in me? Not that deep, but so what I did is I went to Aus- I moved to Australia. I moved to Australia, where I became a very, very unsuccessful go-go dancer, and <laughs> and I funnily enough, met lots of fellow homosexual go-go dancers who I felt deeply in love with.
1: I feel like in the late 90s, turn of the century, turn of the millennia in fact, that Australia was, I went over there in like the year 2000 maybe, and it was a r- really like a big part of the gay scene i don't know whether it was um like priscilla queen of the desert or whatever it was but it seemed like it was like being a raging queen in australia was basically the expected level
2: it felt like the mecca for anyone wanting to go on a sort of gay pilgrimage and and you know it was the time exactly i mean do you remember the, the olympics the sydney olympics kylie minogue I mean, it was literally like the gay games, wasn't it? It was the campest thing ever. Kylie on a surfboard swimming into the arena. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I I had a love affair with lots of boys in Australia and they got lots of letters. And in my everyday life now, I use letter writing as a use of therapy.
1: Oh, me too. That's why I, I don't really say... I mean, obviously, I send hundreds of letters every week, but they are usually like... I've told the council to collect your bins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, like, nice to the secretary, she's very sorry that your husband's in prison abroad. So I write, a, I write a lot, a huge number of letters, and letter writing is currency in my life. Uh, like, you know, you write personal notes to people and in politics and things. But um, actually, the, the thing I'd use letter writing for the most is just the act of uh therapizing like I'm, I'm shit in therapy i've tried to go to therapy twice and both times i just thought i'm not very good at this uh, yeah i am very very good at just like fiercely writing down letters that sometimes i send sometimes i don't
2: so i have developed this tool that has been one of the most useful self-therapizing techniques i've ever learned in my life and that is i write letters to myself and I mainly do it when I'm angry, because the thing is, I've spent so much of my life being very angry. I grew up in a place where being angry and and seeing red and having rage was just the normal, you know, in the pub, in the family. And that was our currency, right? So I realised that that just doesn't work for me. It doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't... I am definitely not my best. But I spent so much of my life trying to stop being angry. Now... I've now realised as I've got older that anger can be very useful. It means that we are passionate. It means that we care about stuff. Exactly. It's pushed me forward, actually, to be the rebel that I am today. However, it isn't always practical. It also isn't always rational. It's messy and, you know, it leads to snot bubbles coming out your nose and spittle. And so for me, when I'm feeling really angry, what I do is I write to that person or I write to that feeling or I write to myself and I seal the envelope and I put it down and then I visit it again in a week and if I still feel the same way then I challenge it but I do it in a way more rational way and if I don't I realise that I was just having a shit day or I was annoyed really about the fact that I missed the bus or something you know what I mean and and so it's just it's so weird that the therapy in writing letters, the use that it has, it's benefited me all my life and I've, people need to write letters.
1: I should do it um more well, I should do that and then like look back at them over a week later because what I would find is that there would be one week of the month where I wrote definitely more letters. Like earlier I just shouted at my son and then I thought, shit, I bet I'm getting my period because i was literally yeah. <laughs> why are you always taking my things and then i was like why are you being so unreasonable he's not that annoying and then i thought oh i bet it's fucking that um so yeah so definitely i've definitely write more letters to therapist uh the week before my period um but writing letters i think i went to glastonbury this year uh, and i went with my uh husband and my son and they they have this thing set up at Glastonbury now where you can write a postcard from Glastonbury and you put like a special Glastonbury. I mean, obviously, it's more than an actual postcard and more than an actual stamp. It's like one million dollars for to. But like everybody's there doing it. And there was this young woman. She must have been like 21. My son wanted to write uh, one to his auntie, Liz. They they exchanged letters like every week. My 13 my year old son and auntie Liz, not a real auntie, just a random friend of his now so so he was writing uh, he was like oh I'm going to send a postcard to Whitey Liz and he starts writing it and this this young woman who was about 21 now I'm going to cut her some slack because she was pissed but she stood there and I'm stood over my son watching him write his letter and uh, she said oh where do I write the address and I was like okay she might not have written a postcard before so I was like well you, you write the address down this side and then you write what you want to write here and then she was just like okay and then she looked at me and she said how do you write an address? Do I start with the name? And I was like, what? I was like, right, who do you want to write to? And she said, she told me their name. I said, right, that, write that here. And I said, now, what, what, where does he live? And she was like, "She's like, Bristol. I was like, okay, we're going to need a little more detail. Yeah. Than <laughs> so the, write the street, then write Bristol, then if you know it, write the postcode, but it will probably get there without the postcode. And she was like, so I just write... Is it like the number, then the name of the road? And I was like, oh my God. And the woman who was running the stall is like watching me totally losing my shit at this person. Like, what is wrong with you? Why can't you write a letter? And the woman is looking at me and she just pointed behind her because they had a post box where you post it and at the end of the day they empty it and the postman takes it. She had a wall behind her where all of the postcards that didn't have addresses on them were pinned up and there were loads of them which just, like, people don't, people don't know how to write letters.
2: It makes me really sad. Jess, do you find that when you're typing constantly, constantly, and then you pick up a pen, it takes you a minute to remember the flow? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm always trying to write and use a pen because actually... Even I love looking at the way people write. It says so much about a human being, doesn't it? The language they use, the, the flow and everything, it's beautiful. Also, I mean, I'm so ADHD and the way that I write was always... I was always told, you know, I hated that thing at school. Do you remember when you you had to hold a pen in this certain way? And I remember having to get that little rubber thing that they gave you and I still don't write like that. I write in with the way that I want, which looks a little what they would call, you know, different, whatever. But actually my writing, I love it because it's so out there. It's all over the place. I use a mixture of capitals and there's And I don't care. I don't care. It's my personality. It's my uniqueness.
1: I think our generation really suffered from being the lag of the middle bit between sort of progressive teaching and an old Victorian guard style. It was like directly in the middle. So my husband, he won't even really write a card because he is convinced probably by that weird pen that they made you have if you couldn't hold the pen properly. Um, that he can't write. And he writes, like you say, with capitals in the... Like, it's all over the place. And he has been... He's been trained to basically feel like he can't write. He's one of the cleverest people I know. And uh, he, he believes he can't write. And I, I think that that is an absolute travesty of the education yeah, system.
2: I do too. But that was the time... Oh God, I sound so old. That was the time... But that was the time where our, what, what we were told is we were wrong or we were right, we were good or we were bad, you know... We were smart, we were dumb. And I think that once you fell into those pens, that it was very hard to get out of it because I always felt like the dumb kid, the misunderstood kid. And actually I was just a creative
1: flouncer. But <laughs> now... Uh, my kid, my my youngest son. Honestly, he makes you look like a wallflower. And he'll go to school on like non uniform day, wearing like he wears like bright rainbow dungarees, massive earrings, and he does like um, he he tells me about how in the canteen he got on the table and did like a flash dance to the Backstreet Boys.
2: I love that. I think that's that make that fills my heart with so much joy because I I never had that courage and I it didn't stop that I wanted to be doing that but I didn't have the courage to do so it took me a lot longer in life and so the fact that we're now in a place where he can do that and not get victimized or bullied is amazing isn't it
1: also he dressed up as a superhero one day when no one else was gonna do it he just doesn't give a shit I know but it's as his mother I am like who you know went to school in the 80s and 90s I'm like that you're gonna get killed but Apparently not. Apparently it's much better now and it's fine. And you can be a creative kid who loves music more than than you like writing things down. So I've asked you to think about three people you want to write letters to. So the first one would be the person who means the world to you. And obviously I'd like to caveat this with if you pick somebody, it doesn't mean that everybody else in your life is not somebody who means the world. I just, like feel like people get really guilty. Like, well, I, I like my mum, but I also like my dad. And it's like, yeah, it's all right. It doesn't mean you hate them. This isn't Twitter. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, then mine is a total cop-out because mine is mine is my mum and dad. i tell you why, Jet. Like, if, if I wrote a letter to my mum, I write a letter to my dad, it's very much they come as a unit. And I think in today's world, that is very rare. There are two people that are wild and amazing and they love each other so much and their love has progressed over the years they've got you know like I said they've got so many children and well they make each other laugh they make each other laugh so much and I really think that you know when the sex stops well I assume that it stopped I, I really hope it stopped and if it hasn't stopped I'll be writing another letter um, <laughs> but for yeah you know the thing is that they still love each other's company and they still find each other funny and they still even though my dad's got terrible arthritis they still do slow dancing in the front room and it's so strange because growing up feeling the way I did which was I always felt like an imposter I always felt like I it sounds terrible and my mum's really struggled with this and I wrote about this in my book so much that I felt like I was born into the wrong family Um, and felt really misunderstood and just alone, I felt very alone in the chaos, and so much so that I really unfairly resented my mum and dad so much, and wanted to get away. Because I think that we look at our parents, don't we, growing up in a in a such a romanticised way? We we almost dehumanise them. We don't think they're human. We think that they're they're superhuman. And so, when I think back now, I think what they did for me is everything I've been through, everything I've put them through, and I've been t- troublesome. <laughs> they never stopped being there for me. They never stopped loving me. They always try to see the best in me, and I made it very difficult. And, and I think the one thing that is amazing about them, and annoyingly it takes you to get to this age, where all of a sudden you're at an age where you could be a parent, and, you know, all of a sudden they are now grandparents and I feel myself stepping in and wanting to look after them you get to this age and you go wow wow they were unbelievable parents and the values that they taught me are still deeply part of my character and I carry them probably stronger and more at the forefront of my personality than I ever have before and I'm so proud and so grateful that those values obviously they connected with me on on some way there was just so much love around me growing up there really was and there was also chaos you know and we were like I said we were a loud fighty family we were that family that when we were collectively together I'm sure most people would leave the room we were in <laughs> but we loved loudly and brashly and I I, I love them so much I think it's so, one wonderful thing about getting older is that I look at my parents now and even sometimes just thinking about them and thinking about what they've given me makes me emotional. You know, I'm so grateful to them.
1: I bet, you know, I mean, as a mother of teenagers, I sort of wish they would fast forward to that bit where they can humanise me and not either think that I am literally the be all and end all or literally the worst human being on earth. Uh, Those are the two options.
2: Or just, or just a resource.
1: I consider myself to be like a, Power source that they have to plug into for various things, and it used to be like you know, literally physical hard work when they were littler, and now it is money. (laughs) And I have to say, post pandemic, a battle against loneliness. So you talked about feeling lonely. Uh, I'm I'm really cognizant of that. Even though my house is chaotic and there's loads of people in it all the time, and our lives are quite chaotic. I am cognizant that they could feel that like they get lonely uh, and can feel isolated from you. Uh, and so sometimes you have to just try and break the isolation with a bit of resor- your resource. Uh, but yeah, I am just a resource base for my kids. And it's just, I'm just like... like Literally, like a sort of mothership that gets your energy sucked out of you for on their behalf, but that's fine. But that's what um, that's what
2: that's what we need as kids. I think when you're acting out and when you're exploring all of those kinks in your own personality, what all you want is consistency. All you want is love, right? And I think that, especially as a queer person, I think that I've heard so many nightmare stories over the years of parents that have not, you know, people that have not had that from their parents. And what was amazing when I came out is that. My mum opened her house in the same way that she does with, did with all the neighbourhood children, you know. we aren't back doors never open. People would literally come in. I'd come home after school if I'd stayed late at school. open the fridge, there's nothing in it because the neighbourhood kids had come in and taken all the food. She didn't care. And she did, she did that constantly with all the, all the waifs and gays, as she would call them.
1: <laughs> and she, they were fine about it, your parents, you being gay? Yeah,
2: I think the thing that my mum cried... A lot, and she cried. Once she stopped crying, she said, "I'm not sad because you're gay. I'm sad because you'll never be a father." And I knew that you, out of all my children, would make the greatest father. But times have changed.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely I think that that would you know when when I was when my mates were coming out and stuff when I was a teenager, that was a very real concern. Like, and and that's a fair concern because that used to. Absolutely, be the case. Whereas my kids get to school, every second bloody parent is a is a gay of some variety. <laughs> every second one, mo- like you know, it's 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 not a big deal at all anymore. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I think that there was a fear, you know. You, bearing in mind, you got to remember, I when I came out, so I came out in ninety nine, and. It was, it was really, my parents had grown up to, the word gay, was. there was so much fear around it. We'd grown up around Section 28 um, and, the, you know, the AIDS and AIDS. And, and, and in my mum's mind, that if you were gay, you got AIDS, you died. So when I came out, she was just so terrified for me and also terrified of just me being victimised walking down the street. And I've been really lucky that, That's not really ever happened to me. But I think that's also because I refuse to allow that to happen to me. (laughs) Um, But then I'm lucky. I am lucky. I come with a certain level of privilege and I'm always aware of that.
1: Whereas my kids now, like, you know, there's no coming out. There is no, like, there is no coming out. Like, that's not a thing that exists, uh, I think, in sort of progressive homes anymore. It's like that that's just it's not like a big moment where they're going to sit down and be like mom I'm gay I'm like you don't say
2: I think I think that's that is that is the society that I want to live in that is the future that I want to live in that, that those kids because you know a lot of gay queer kids they miss a whole decade they skip a decade where kids are in the playground exploring their sexuality and their gender and all of those things us queer kids are sat in our bedrooms you know looking at comics and living inwards and imagining what romance might look like we're not getting to experience it so the fact that that's happening younger and younger and parents are seeing it and not only seeing it but going no big deal this is a safe space for you to do whatever you want I think that our country has many problems don't get me wrong but actually when I talk about my privileges I think I'm lucky that I was born in this country. Imagine if I was born in Saudi or if I was born... You know what I mean? That is a massive privilege that me as a white gay man... Like, I can talk about having a tough time, but come on, get some perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, like, yeah, like, there is a huge amount of privilege in all of those things. <laughs> One thing I have to rebut constantly the moment is the, the in the culture wars... Uh, that seem to rage in politics is this idea that working class people are really intolerant. It's just like I, I've got to say, my working class communities are gayer by and large. Like they don't, they they are uh, often so completely and utterly family oriented. they they're like you know like my cleaners like oh yeah you know she's a boy in the day, a girl at night like whatever like she's like she give a shit like the, the this idea that working class communities in old pit villages or in you know are all hate are all racist and are all like it's just it's just not my experience of the world
2: of course, but that's convenient weaponizing isn't it it's just very easy to do that I mean look, I know that anyone that that has experienced difficulty or any Anyone that's experienced hardship, I think, comes with a bigger level of empathy for fellow people. And I think that's why working class people, why we are constantly made out to be aggressive and, and violent and loud and abrasive and combative. And actually, we're not. That's just the way that we communicate. But what that actually doesn't take into consideration is our hearts and how... welcoming we are with
1: open arms to people struggling because we are struggling absolutely that whole thing like you know you have all the kids around your house like that is every single family in my within my family like that is every home we've ever lived in and your nan would say things like i've barely got anything in and then you'd be like an entire spread for a thousand people to eat and, it, like, you know, the sort of generosity of spirit. It's like if I go door knocking in my either my mainly Irish communities or my mainly Muslim communities in my constituency, I cannot leave. I mean, even if I am now, I'm always on a diet where I don't eat carbohydrates, this has never, ever been tolerated by any of these communities. <laughs> but, yeah, so your, your mum and dad sound excellent. I mean, anyone who has seven children and doesn't literally... You know, check out. I, I think. I mean, I've got two, and that's too many. To have seven kids, that must have been. Are you all quite close in age?
2: There's two years between us all each time, and my mum would have carried on having children. But I know she's a lunatic, but she loves it. She just. I mean, I think she just always wanted to be queen of the disco, and she really is. If you have that many children, it's a non-stop nightclub in your house. And my and my mum and dad. What's been What's been really wonderful is to see. You know, because they were quite old, they were quite old school in the way that they saw the world. And and when you have seven children, I mean, you are literally seven working class children. You know, we really, we've put them through every single thing you could ever see on Jeremy Kyle. (laughs) And so they've had their eyes open to a world, you know, that... It's, it's been just amazing how with everything they get more open more progressive more and, and also they, they're they two people that I think have not just um, they never just wanted to accept you know oh that's fine I just don't want to see it they want to understand you know so they want to come and see me in a pair of six inch stripper heels and a jockstrap dance around a pole and they did
1: so your mum and dad how would you sign up a letter to your mum and dad who sound epic um Mum and Dad, Marion and Roger... Queen and King, here
2: I stand as a unique, strong, complex, 42-year-old misfit, and I am here courageously and fearlessly because of you both. I have lived so many lives in hyperspeed with distraction and chaos. I have dangerously teetered on the edge and often fallen into the gutter, but I bounce back every time because of you. You taught me limitless love, unflappable support, and values that meant I can never be fully lost because I know who I am and what I stand for. I am the man you raised me to be.
1: Oh, that is so lovely. Also, I mean, you should have loads of kids yourself because Marion and Roger, those names are going to die. (laughs) So the second letter I asked you to think about was to somebody who's no longer here. So who would that be to?
2: Oh, well, it was a really tricky one, this, because I think I've really not in my life, luckily, lost that many people until recently. When I read this, I thought, do I want to go there? Do I actually want to talk about this person? And I actually thought, "Yes, yeah, she would want me to talk about her. <laughs> um, so the second person is a dear friend that I lost very recently called Lindell Mansfield. Um, not just a friend to me, she was a friend to the world. She was the ultimate connector and a firework of a human being. She was a really, really... She's from... Queensland and Australia and she came to London with dreams, a wild laugh and a, a enough personality to, you know, to fill a football field to become a hairdresser, a celebrity hairdresser and she went on to be the ultimate celebrity hairdresser with a really unique clientele. She was known for her kind of raucous rock and roll style and did, not. I would say it was more than hair, she created iconic looks for people like uh, Noel Fielding and Beth Ditto and she was really the ultimate underdog misfit and lifted she was all, always just about finding those amazing creative young people and lifting them up if there was a party you would find her in the middle of the dance floor and that's exactly how she died she died whilst at a party dancing and she was spinning around and then was no longer with us and died on the dance floor and it's poetic in some weird twisted way I think that's how the funeral was like nothing I've ever witnessed in my life and I was asked to conduct the funeral and it was the biggest honor of my life but also the scariest thing I've ever done because how do you how do you summarize someone's life I could talk about Lindell for days and still not even uh, cover how effervescent and Unbelievable, she was, and I think sometimes people in life don't need to live to a ripe old age because she lived about ten lives. She, she's just a, just a magical human, and and when she passed, it had such a, an impact on me, such an impact on me. I realised so many more things that I'd been taking for granted in my life, and. I just think about it all the time I've just come back from a retreat actually I went away for two weeks in Mallorca and she was just there with me the whole time she's just there and I'm I'm it's weird I, as I've got a bit older I've got a bit more switched in to spirituality in the world and I I, I think sometimes you know I want to I want to know what is out there and I want to look for things and I think sometimes there's signs and since she had wild wild pink hair and since she's passed I've just at times where I've needed a bit of a boost or a bit of courage there it is and I was in New York and I was having a really bad day not feeling like oh I'm not really into this no wind none wind whatsoever this wild gust of wind came and wild pink bougainvillea just dripped I'm like fuck me you get everywhere you <laughs> and I've just really struggled with the grief since she's gone because I've never really had to process it, and I feel this obligation to talk about Lindell. I feel this obligation that her energy will live on in us, and and the impact that she gave so many of us, and that life and energy. And I think en- energy is transferable. And I think that if she, if we, if anyone was fortunate fortunate enough to have met her we we are we are holding her energy, and we should carry it forward and I just I feel so lucky that she was my friend,
1: yeah, I mean it's hard if you deal with grief, especially of somebody like who i know that you know it's hard when anybody dies, but who shouldn't have died because either of their age or their health like they that it if you don't get the chance to get used to the idea but it is very very hard i always think that dealing with grief is hard because it the first time is it's the first time you've ever actually in your whole life experienced forever forever is merely a concept until somebody is dead because like you'll never see them again like that, that there's there's a never and you we we talk about that sort of thing all the time and like we think that we have the idea of forever but the absolute foreverness of somebody being gone is it's hard to contemplate it's like it's existential it's like oh gosh like how can it be that I'll never be able to pick up the phone to you again I'll never be able to dance the night away with you again it just doesn't seem real and that is it's hard to come to terms with that again I think it gets better the more grief you suffer which is I think
2: no I think um when she passed I think all of us just were in complete shock because she, she was the epitome of life, you know? But the craziest thing is, and I'm only speaking on behalf of myself here, but it's very strange in that I found some peace and solace in that she is she's here. She is very much here. Lindell impacted so many things that she, you know, her imprint, on the world that i know in london will forever forever she she made her impact and i think
1: yeah but I, I mean i think that that's really i think it's true that people are still here like i don't believe like i don't believe that they're looking down on me necessarily i think that they are there like they are there in like the curl of your lip if it's your family or like you know like in everything like in parliament I feel like Joe Cox is with me all the time. Like, you know, I, I feel like her, she's there. She's next to me. Like, and I don't, it's, there's nothing even that hocus pocus about it. Like, they just had an impact. And they left a mark on the world. Like, a mark was left. And, and you can't get rid of that mark.
2: No. And, um, and I think actually all we ever want in life is to, have done something of worth, have left some impact. And I don't think you'd like I said before, you need to live to a hundred to do that. And Lindell did that for so many people. So I'm like I said, I'm just I've got to a place now where I'm, I'm I'm always gonna feel a level of sadness, but it comes with also a level of gratitude and and peace because I think that she will live on, always.
1: Also some when it gets to my mum died eleven years ago and I feel happy when I feel sad now. Because when it grabs me, because it reminds me how much I loved her. Like, you know, like the sadness is love. Uh, And wasn't it the Queen who said that very terribly poignant thing that uh, when Philip died, he said, grief is the price we pay for love. Uh, And like that is like, you know, that I I now relish it. The moments where I feel sad, they are longer times between them and it feels much less like an abyss. Uh, much more like potholes <laughs> than an enormous hole uh, that I'll roll my ankle in one day. But then I'm, I'm grateful for the sadness. I'm really grateful to feel the sadness. When
2: you go to that sad place, because what I tend to do is, if I'm feeling sad about it, there's always connective of me remembering something that we experienced together. You're like, oh, they're
1: there. They're like that. So it's, And then it's like, oh, God, this shit again. And then you're like, oh, what's, they're there. Yeah, it's nice uh i like i say i enjoy it. i like glut to your melancholy i enjoy it I, I like it so how would you sign off your letter to linda
2: um linda i see you shine with every pink sky i dance harder with you in my heart and i live fearlessly with your spirit you changed mine and so many others lives and we carry your energy forever in your 40 years you lived harder faster and more outrageous than most do in a lifetime and i will live my life a little more Lindell, until the very end of time because of you Let's have a shot, babe.
1: <laughs> Always, let's have. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Is that when you used to doing shots with somebody and then they're gone. Every time you have a shot, you will think of them. <laughs> there is an element of social ritual that that uh, they're ritualistic things and ritual. We have rituals in our society for a reason there are things that like feel ritualistically certainly about our generation of people that and and definitely drinking shots is one of the it's like a community ritual it's a bit like you know like almost like a eucharist it's a ritual that we share together and like the the whole like putting salt on you like the whole thing is really ritualistic
0: ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender, as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you.
1: So uh, the final letter would be to somebody who has affected your life, but wouldn't necessarily know that they'd have any effect on you. So who would that be?
2: Well, I was trying to think actually about this, Jess. I was trying to think, is there a teacher? Is there someone that I grew up with in my community? And the answer is no. So I always felt very, very misunderstood um, until I discovered Bjork. And Bjork really was the first time that the first time that I ever saw something in myself. Now, the thing is about myself is that you, I came out as gay at 19, but I actually came out as a sort of weirdo, a creative alternative person at my very conforming school before that. And the vehicle for that was Bjork. I remember the day and sometimes you never know why you're drawn to something in life. But I remember when debut came out, of her first album, and seeing these, that you know, the artwork and the poster, and just being really drawn to it. But obviously, it wasn't as easy as just getting it on iTunes. So in I in I I went in, I saved for the album with my paper round money, without hearing any of the songs. But there was something drawing me to it, and I bought the album, and it honestly changed my life. It was as though. She was singing it to me, for me. There was this deeply creative person inside of me that had no vehicle for creativity. And I think that we need to be led and encouraged into creativity, much like a swimmer needs to practice swimming all the time. You need to be shown and be inspired by creative practices. And I have really been looking for those. And I come from a very uncreative family they're just not creative and so there would never been that option and yeah my family were very uncreative very practical they had to be seven children lot to do <laughs> um but i knew that i was i knew that my future was going to be creative and free and wild and all of those things but i had no idea how to get there and sometimes you just need to be shown the way and discovering bjork was honestly like someone had landed on my planet and beamed me up and I became so obsessed with her but it became my guilty secret. I would listen to her on my paper round. I remember also when I discovered Buick was when I started writing poetry. It was when I started just experimenting secretly with my creativity and started expressing myself so I think it made me feel less alone. It really did and then through that I found other guilty because that, there's a real great thing in finding your tribe, finding those people. And that could be people that love comics or love war games or us weird kids, we need to find those other weird kids. And you often find that those, those weird kooks in our personality are linked very, very much. And so I found fellow Bjork fans, one of which obviously ended up being gay and he became my first gay friend. And But we were creative Bjork fans first before we were gay. That was the most important thing. And... um. And yeah, I still, to this day, I just think that she's still untouchable in terms of her... I, I agree. Have you ever seen her live? So many times.
1: Well, oh, I mean, there is nobody I have ever seen in all my life. I went to see it. It was at a fair... I can't even remember. It may have been Glastonbury, like in the 90s. Um, or it might have been one of the other festivals in the 90s. And it was... And so it wasn't like she even got to put on the show that she might have put on, had it been just a Bjork show. And it was fucking mesmerising because she is, like, she... Tiny little woman. And she embodied the whole field, like, like, like... And the show, she just loved it. Like, she properly performed. I remember watching her sing Violently Happy and there was fireworks and I remember thinking, this is the greatest thing. And it's still, bar none bar absolutely none, the greatest live show I've ever seen. Because
2: she's an artist, she's a visual artist, she's a performance artist, she's a musical artist, and we 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 all just live in Bjork's world, really, and should witness it, and it's a magical... The impact that she's had on not just music, you know, on young queer kids, on women, on... on uh, performance artist, visual artist. She's just gra- so groundbreaking, still groundbreaking.
1: Also, I just love the fact that she speaks English with a Cockney accent. I love that. Yeah, uh, she went in the nineties. She went out with Goldie, who's from Birmingham. She went out with Goldie. Out, wasn't was that the from best. Birmingham, but... we used to literally be like, try and go to all the like D and B nights in case Bjork was like there dancing. Uh, so we would we would we, we we tried to stalk Bjork. In the 90s because she was going out with somebody from Birmingham and so she felt so touchable to us. The Best couple
2: ever. And I also like that she's otherworldly, but from what I hear, there's... So my friend, my friend Andrew does her makeup and she's amazing and lovely and great. And my other friend went to Iceland on holiday, walk into the local restaurant and she's DJing in the restaurant because her friend owned it. She's just playing records. Bjork. In a restaurant, DJing. She's the queen, isn't she the queen? Yeah, she's the best.
1: She is, and when like, and when she used to appear on all those sort of pop programs in the in the nineties, like uh, she just seemed so effortlessly like nice and cool, and but like there's no side to it. Like she just was a nice woman, and like that, like to to then watch her live, like, to, to be an icon and just be a nice woman is, like, that was, like, a new concept to me, that idea but like, oh, she's just, like, a nice woman. I might bump into her at the Oasis markets in Birmingham. She's incredible. I
2: love her. Imagine if you did. <laughs> that would have been the best. I
1: don't know what we would have done. We once saw Mark from Take That in Pigeon Park in Birmingham, and <laughs> we totally, like, were, like... Oh, we we hung out with the prodigy once, that was, and again, we did not play it cool. Like, I don't know what we would have done if we'd actually ever bumped into Bjork.
2: Bjork in in the ball ring. Oh my (laughs) God, stop everything.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, so how would you sign off your letter to Bjork, which you're writing for every, uh, you know, slightly offbeat child from the 1990s? (laughs)
2: Our fearless leader, Bjork, since you landed on our planet, I've never looked at life in the same way. I remember that first time I listened to your music and the hypnotic power it seduced me with. I was never the same again. I always knew I was an alien on a planet that felt scary and isolating at times. You showed me that my difference, creativity, and uniqueness was my power. Thanks to you, I've instinctively trusted the creative process in everything I do, realised no idea is bad, and I've danced joyfully in my ridiculous splendour ever since. In your words, it takes courage to enjoy it, the hardcore and the gentle, big time sensuality.
1: I love Bjork. I had forgotten about our very, very 1990s commitment to Bjork. Yeah, well, get back (laughs) on it, Jess,
2: get back on it.
1: We did everything. We stuck shit on our faces. Like, we absolutely loved her. Like, like, and it was genuine. It feels like a tribe of people. Uh, It definitely feels tribal. Uh, there is a tribal element to that that is really nice um that I feel like I hope my kids have it I don't know they they're out all the time <laughs> they seem to be having a nice time. I, don't know. I just worry that because we they live in such like a such a progressive environment that like they don't have anything to butt against. I'm a bit like. <laughs> You need to feel a little bit isolated, a little bit, so that you can grow a little bit. But I feel like I'm always like, yeah, whatever. Do whatever you want.
2: Oh, <laughs> listen, you're giving them a safe space. There's enough to butt up against outside, I tell you.
1: That's true. Uh, I was uh, I was with a really old guard, lovely uh, bloke from my community earlier, and uh, he said to me, how are your kids? They've got no hope in the world. It's on fire. And I was like, they <laughs> <laughs> so don't agree. Be- They've got a lot of external factors to counter with, you know, the climate and, you know, regressive fascist governments around the world. I'll I'll let them take that on. Yeah. Um, They'll be fine. They'll have something to butt against. (laughs) They will. Well, it has been a total pleasure and uh, a, a '90s nostalgia uh, for me. It's it's always really nice to speak to people who grew up as you did uh, in similar environments to the one that you did. So it has been a total pleasure. Thank you so much. It's
2: been amazing, Jess. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Your Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye.